0: Okay, so we're going to jump in. If you have a Bible, you can go to John chapter 6. If you've got a Bible on your phone or your iPad, uh, we will have it on the screen as well. John chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And as you're turning there, I was was thinking this week about a story from a couple years ago. A couple years ago, I was doing some leadership training with a group of Hispanic pastors in California, and I had been asked to do a two-day leadership training with these pastors and walk them through some of the tensions of leadership. And it was just this Really super fun time. It was material that I knew well, but I had never done in one single long retreat period. So I was pretty nervous. I was trying to figure out a good flow, and I wanted it to be something impactful for these leaders. And added to all that, because these were Hispanic pastors in California, the majority of them did not speak English as their first language. So they brought in a white West Virginia boy. And I was going to be spending the weekend speaking and facilitating with a translator the entire time. So Friday night, three sessions on Saturday and preaching in a couple churches on Sunday. The church I preached in on Sunday spoke, they, they were a trilingual service. They had Spanish, English, and Portuguese all happening at the same time. It was the coolest, craziest worship experience I've ever been a part of. To say the least, this was... Brand new territory for me, and I wanted to get it right. So here's here's what happened at one point. I, I leave some space at the end of one of those sessions to do a question and answer time and interact around the topics that those folks wanted to engage. And it's it's so good. I love the QA, I love the improv of that. Until this one guy raises his hand and asks this question, and I could literally feel the posture of my translator change. His name was Abraham. Abraham's a good friend of mine, and, and I just sensed there was something happening here. I had no idea what it was. And, and to this point, when a question was asked from the crowd, he would listen, then he would translate to me what they were asking, and then I would answer as best I could, and he would translate and fix everything I screwed up theologically, and and we would be in good shape. It, it was very back and forth, but as this gentleman asked his question and finally ended it, it was a very long question with an agenda I found out later, um, the translator didn't look at me. He, he didn't translate, And he took the question himself, and he just began to respond in Spanish to this man. And I realized I was no longer needed at that point, and... I was okay with that. And as their conversation went on, I'm talking several minutes, I felt the room dynamics start to change. I don't know if you've ever felt this. Have you ever been in a room where you just feel it change in a heartbeat? But, but being in a career that has me public speaking for, for 20 years, I can feel things in a room, right? Like I know about 20 minutes in, you all are going to start shuffling and check your phones or clip your nails. I used to be in a church where every Sunday somebody would clip their fingernails. So gross. So gross. I was like, "That's better than sleeping, though." Some of you. Um, so, like, I know, I know the room dynamics, and there's a shift. People get restless. They move. They, they do what they can. I can feel it. Or I know when there's a point that hits home because you see people engage, or they wipe their eyes. And this is why COVID has been so hard to preach because I can't see your faces. I don't know if you're like this guy's full of it, right? Like, I have no idea what's going on. So I felt this room change, and I could tell my translator was really annoyed. Others, others in the room started to speak out. It started to be this this free-for-all, like a free discussion that hadn't been planned, right? And the man kept firing off questions or responses, and the translator, Abraham, my friend, kept responding, but I had no idea what was being said. And and after a few minutes, it stopped. The man sat back in his chair, the translator glanced, and then closed the service, and we moved on, and I still had absolutely no idea what had taken place. I didn't know if he called me a cotton-knitted nitty-muggin. Like, I had no idea what was going on, but I felt it. Last week, I spent a little time with you looking at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in John 6. We, uh, our family at the beginning of February, like so many others, we were quarantined. And I spent a lot of time just on my own journaling and praying and looking at John 6, and so as we were getting ready to come back, I said, I want to just do two weeks of quarantine lessons, things that I felt like God was speaking into me, and so we're just kind of opening my journal. That's all I'm doing this week, but next week, we're going to start a brand new series called Breathing Room, and Breathing Room is going to be kind of verse by verse through Psalm 23. How many of you, it's a hard part of a hard year. That's the phrase I've been using. Right now, February gray. It's almost over, by the way, is a hard part of a hard year that we've experienced. And we could use some breathing room. And so we're gonna live into a psalm that says God cares for us. Amen? God is our shepherd. We're gonna, I could preach that now. We're not going to do it. But today, I want to go back to John 6 and look at one more piece of the story. And, and I want to give you a little bit of the synopsis of John, his gospel, up to this point. Because you really need to know where he's been to understand where he's going. So in chapter 1, it's all about the intro. It's his first disciples are called. Then chapters 2 through the early part of chapter 6 is Jesus growing his ministry. Right, so he's entering space in these communities, and he's this traveling rabbi, and he's preaching this gospel that they've never heard, and he's working miracles, so he turns water into wine. Isn't it cool that we have a Savior that the first miracle he does is keep a party going with alcohol? Right? Tell me that God's legalistic. Come on. We see him right after that going into the temple, the established religious institution, and clearing the temple out and being like, "You all got it wrong. It's not the way it works." And then in chapter three, we see Nicodemus come to him, one of the Pharisees, and say, "I need to understand what you're what you're preaching." And so Nicodemus kind of sneaks to Jesus at night, and they have this long uh, uh, conversation and teaching. And then chapter four, we see Jesus go and reach this Samaritan woman at the well, this unlikely uh, story character, and then this woman goes and changes the whole community because she preaches the gospel of a man who met her at the well with living water and then we see this healing at the pool of Bethesda a man that's been lame for just decades and Jesus heals him and so then at the very beginning of chapter 6 like we talked about last week Jesus feeds 5,000 people with some bread and some fish Billy's fish if you remember if you were here if you weren't here you need to go back and listen But then he walks on water. And I wanted to preach that today. I wanted to preach about Jesus walking on water and meeting his disciples in the storm. But the last part of chapter 6 is really what jumped out at me. So if you look at John 1 through the early part of chapter 6, you see this growing ministry. Think about this. right? For five and a half chapters, Jesus' ministry has been thriving. Miracles, water to wine, confronting hypocrites in the temple, shifting mindsets, healing bodies, loving the outcasts, feeding thousands, walking on water. Imagine this if it were to take place in our world today, right? Imagine the results of this, the social media followers, the videos that would have gone viral. Jesus is set up at this point for something amazing. He's probably going to get a speaking tour and a book contract, like all that stuff's going to happen. In fact, even if you just look at the movement of John 6, and I always tell you context is super important with Scripture, but if you look at John 6, you see this momentum thrusting forward. He's moved from calling some disciples to now having thousands of followers, 5,000 people are fed. He gives them the bread that doesn't run out. He calls his disciples and says, you live into this mission. You keep feeding the people. Trust me to make these people Jesus followers. Let me do what I'm going to do. Even when you're tired and hungry, keep living, keep going, keep going. And the crowds won't leave them alone. Right? Like they keep following Jesus. So after this feeding, Jesus retreats to pray on his own, and he sends the disciples ahead of him by boat. And then he comes. There's a storm, and they're about three or four miles into their journey and he walks out on the water, and then they arrive at the shore, and it's like everything builds to this moment, right? As the disciples, these worshipers of Jesus land with him in their boat, they see these crowds again. He can't get away from it, and Jesus stands up to teach these people who have walked the length of the sea to find him and his disciples. He has all this momentum. It's like the state of the union. What are you going to say, Jesus? And let me just preface before we read this next part of John 6 I, I'm I'm jumping ahead you need to read the whole chapter you need to go home and study this whole chapter the whole teaching but I want you to see where Jesus goes with his teaching because he looks at a people who were miraculously fed and now are following him and they're peasants and they're looking for more bread because they don't have any money and he says this in John 6 look at verse 48 he says to the crowds that he had just fed miraculously with bread he says I am." the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. He's referencing Passover back in Exodus where the Israelites were set free and they had nothing to eat and God provided bread, manna in the wilderness. Verse 50, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. And he's talking about himself. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews, and you got to highlight this, underline this, circle this. Then the Jews, the crowds, began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is the same moment I had in California. See, Jesus is sharing, and suddenly he feels the crowd dynamics start to change. Discomfort, frustration, anger, anxiety, whatever it is. The words that Jesus just preached have set them off. Now, let me explain to you why I think this starts to be difficult for this crowd. See, Jesus is still echoing the Moses story. And if you were a Jewish peasant, if you were a Jewish boy or girl growing up in this culture at this time, remember these people had time in the middle of their days to go search for a traveling rabbi and listen to him. They were not, by the way, gainfully employed. They were out wandering around in the middle of the day. They were poor vagrants. But if you were a Jewish peasant living in the first century Israel, which functioned politically under the authority of the Roman Empire, if you were a Jewish peasant at this time, the Moses story, freeing the people from slavery, was your story. See, Rome, the empire in control, taxed the people up to 90% of their income. You think our government's bad. They ruled their towns. They dominated everything about their lives, just like Egypt had. So the Moses story, if you were a Jewish peasant, was your story. You were living in captivity just like Israel had been in Egypt, and you were hoping, longing that one day God would provide answers to his promises and send Messiah to free you once again, the new Moses, the Savior of the world, to provide in the same way just like Moses had for the Israelites coming out of Egypt. So think about this. You're a Jewish peasant longing for the rescue of Yahweh to send the Messiah. And you've just yesterday seen this man, this rabbi, feed you miraculously in a wilderness place. You're thinking, this is the one we've been looking for. This is the new exodus, the new rescue. Maybe we will finally be free. See, they were following Jesus because they thought he was the answer to every issue they'd ever have. And Jesus starts to teach, and you're hanging on his words. And his words start to unravel your assumptions. And he tells them he's the bread of life. And even though their ancestors had the manna in the wilderness, it didn't last. So he makes a strange statement that sets the crowd off. This is what gets them agitated. Listen to this again. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is, and pay attention, my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. All this ministry momentum. Momentum. All this building over the first five and a half chapters of John, all the crowds that are following him, and now his crowds start arguing. Imagine the arguments. What does he mean he's the living bread? What's that even about? We're going to live forever if we eat the bread that's his body? We had bread yesterday. Is he saying we're going to live forever? Maybe he's losing his mind. He wants us to eat his flesh The bread is his flesh. What in the world does that mean? Does this so-called rabbi know we would be unclean ritually if that was even possible? And then maybe this was the conclusion of the arguing. Maybe this guy isn't who we thought he was. Now, two things. Imagine the feeling of this crowd. Again, frustration, anxiety, fear, hopelessness, disappointment, anger. And imagine Jesus' feelings. What would you do? Right? I think about this, and I know myself, if I had understood in that church in California what was being said, I probably would have tried to calm this guy down. I probably would have said, no, 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 I didn't mean that. I didn't mean the way you took it. I want you to understand where I was coming. I would have wanted to bring peace to the crowd back. And if I was Jesus in this moment, I would have done the same thing. I've got momentum for ministry. Let's not upset the tables, right? I'd try to calm them down, win the crowd back. My friend Abraham did not have any interest in calming the crowd. Now, to be honest, he's an Argentinian, so he's got some fire, right? Later that day, I asked him what was happening at that moment. He very diplomatically said, that guy was being stupid. I took care of it. (laughs) And we went and ate some meat. Like, that's, that's literally what happened. That's so counter to me. Right, like I try to keep the peace when I actually know there are issues, which I'm just ignorant enough to not always realize. Some of you get mad at me, I don't even know it. I like to solve them. I like to help calm things. Abraham didn't feel that way. He said, "I took care of it." Jesus could have calmed the crowd, couldn't he? But watch what happens here. He decides right in the middle of their argument to level up, and this is where I want to focus today. Look at verse 53. Jesus said to them, and you could put it in parentheses here as they're arguing. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Which the crowd was like, what? Now, I know this is, this is thick stuff, right, but I, I want to wade into it so we can draw out some things really clearly. First, understand this poor Israelite peasant community, this crowd hoping they would be freed from Rome like Moses freed the Israelites. They're going to be, they're, they're already angry, right? They're confused and frustrated, and they were excited about the miracles they saw Jesus doing, but now he's preaching something hard and difficult, and they don't like it. And they don't like it, and they're angry, and they're angry because they're, they're a people, a culture, a religion fixated on purity and cleanliness. See, this was a culture, a people of ritual, and he's talking about something. Don't miss this in our American Christianity because we think communion. They would have thought he was talking about cannibalism. What in the world does this mean? And he's doing all this, by the way, in the middle of their holy space, in their synagogue. He's uprooting much of what they believe to be sacred. He's countering the stories of Moses. At least they thought so. And he's calling out, listen, don't miss this, the inadequacies of a faith that survives on legalism. See, legalistic faith will not last. So the result here shouldn't be surprising in verse 60, which is, I love, this is the most honest crowd, right? On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it, right? So let me give you the first lesson for today from quarantine that I felt like I was learning while we were sitting at home a long time, right? Here's the first lesson. Jesus is going to teach you some things that aren't easy. I know that sounds common sense, right? But I think we need to wake up to this. For the Jews here, it may have been misunderstanding, thinking that he's talking about literally physically eating his flesh and drinking his blood when Jesus is actually talking about commitment, He's calling them to the cost of what it means to follow him. See, if you're going to follow Jesus, go all in. He's saying to this crowd, don't just chase the miracles. Don't just look for the feeding of 5,000 and the walking on the water. Look for it all. But listen, what he's teaching this crowd is no easier today to hear than it was then. Can Can I challenge you here? Can I ask you to hear his words again and actually invite them to offend you you think about these statements that he makes first unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you what does that say to us first it says outside of jesus there is no real life there is no real life see we tend to be these 21st century american christians and these statements have become so spiritualized but think about what jesus is saying here anything Anything outside of Jesus that you think is giving you life has no real life in it. It's fake. It's false. It won't work. And yet we keep feeding on the things that won't fill us up. We keep feeding on these relationships that are unhealthy, don't we? We keep feeding on thinking if we just could make more money. What if, we just, if we could just get ahead, then everything will be okay. But then we find ourselves ahead and we only need more. We keep feeding on achievement, status. If I just get the next promotion, if I just get the next social media like, whatever it is. We keep feeding on our job frustration. Some of you are so frustrated with your jobs. Teachers, can I get an amen this week? We are so frustrated with our jobs that we have lost sight of how to be fulfilled because we're feeding on something that doesn't last. Do you know why we go around bitter, anxious, angry, frustrated, hurt? Because we're feeding on false hopes. You're eating junk food instead of the life of Christ and his body. And then he says this, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now listen to me. Culturally, this just isn't accepted today. You may be a longtime Christian. You may have grown up in the church, and you hear this, and you go, yeah, that's no problem. makes sense theologically because you've always been surrounded by it. But don't miss the weight of what Jesus is saying. He doesn't say if you believe in your head intellectually, if you pray a magic prayer, you're going to have eternal life. He doesn't say if you go to church enough. He says if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, sustain yourself on Jesus and Jesus alone. Imagine this. See, here's what I know to be true physically, and I think it's spiritually true too. We become what we eat. Right Now, now think about this. We, we made burgers this week. So good. Right? I don't get a lot of chances to eat meat when my wife is in charge of the cooking. But when we do burgers, we don't just do burgers. My wife buys those pre-made patties. She doesn't eat meat, so I don't trust her to buy meat for our family. But, like, they're they're real ground. They're all uniform. They cook, you know, they're easy, right? But but here's the thing. I remake them. I take two of them, and we make something called the Juicy Lucy. Anybody ever heard of a Juicy Lucy? Juicy Lucy came out of Minnesota, you need to go. There's a little place called Matt's Bar, and it is. there's nothing to it except the Juicy Lucy. I'm just telling you, it is amazing. It's where I went in seminary. <laughs> put those two things together, right? So the Juicy Lucy is a couple of those patties put together with a big hole in the middle, and you just fill it with whatever cheese you can. And so when you cook it on the grill, it becomes this molten lava goodness that just comes out. So this week, I filled it with blue cheese. Oh, I know some of you, right? No, it was good, right? So that's, that's what I consumed. Here's what I know. After I ate the Juicy Lucy this week, I felt like a big piece of blue cheese. <laughs> like, I, it was gross. I know it was gross. I tasted it. I felt it in my gut. Like, it was just, ugh. Right? We become what we eat. Some of you know this. Right? I think this is the point Jesus is making. Consume so much of me that you start to look like me, he says. That you start to taste like me, to smell like me. Paul calls us as Christ followers the aroma of Christ. You are the aroma of Christ. But the problem is some of us smell like blue cheese and not Jesus. Because we're not consuming Jesus. We're not waking up, listen, don't miss this, daily, hourly, minute by minute going, God, I can't move if you don't move me. Let me live into this. See, when we consume or try to live off of the things that won't actually fill us up, we will smell like all those other things. And we won't live. If I eat blue cheeseburgers every day, I'm not going to live very long. So listen, I know it is appreciated in our culture when we say this, but Jesus is not lying here. He is, as the Gospel of John says later on, the way. The truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. Some of you, maybe you haven't been told this or maybe you've been told it and it's never registered and you just need to hear it again. You need to be really clear. There is no life. There is no real life. It's fake bread. And there's no eternal life in the future without Jesus at the center of your life. And then Jesus says this. He says, your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. One more statement that this crowd is arguing about. They don't like, again, peasants thinking they're about to be rescued. A Messiah who feeds thousands and walks on water. This is the new Moses. And Jesus says, manna isn't going to do it. You know what he's saying here? You don't need the same old story. You need a new story. You don't need the same old way of doing things. You don't need to keep trying to do it the way you've always tried. You need new bread. See, I believe many of us need some new stories because the same old stories aren't giving us life. They're killing us, right? Our relationship stories that we keep repeating, these cycle of of impure relationships, these cycle of broken relationships, these cycle of putting all our hope in a relationship, the cycle of whatever it is are killing us versus, versus laying our relationships in front of Jesus and going, use this, do this, do whatever you want and help us to pursue purity. Some of us need to change our emotional stories and actually find healing. You need to stop burying it. I had a conversation with a middle schooler this week, and she sat, sat in my room. She's like, I don't know. I just got all this stuff, and there's tears, and there's, it felt like home, right? Like there's just all this stuff going on, and I'm like, well, well what's your top three stressors? I don't know. It's all of it, right? And she's got these, this, this just pile of emotions, and I think we've got to pursue a new story there. What does healing look like? Some of you, you've got anger stories, and you need to pursue a story of forgiveness, Instead of bitterness and holding on to it. Some of you, you need to pursue healing stories, freedom stories, hopeful stories. Jesus says the manna isn't going to do it. You need a new story. The manna that Moses gave was enough to get through the day. Jesus gives you living bread that will get you through life. So he lays all this out. He takes his teaching up instead of calming the crowd like I would have done. He kind of confronts the false ways they're feeding. And then John tells us. He lets us in. On how Jesus is processing this. Look at verse 61. This is where we'll start to wind down. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this. I love Jesus' self-awareness. I think I made them mad. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Been there. Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Does this offend you? Then what if, see the son of man ascend to where he was before? The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Now, quick question. How many of you remember Paul Harvey and the rest of the story? Anybody remember, kids, this was a radio program before they had phones. You had to crank stuff to get them to talk, right? Paul Harvey used to do these broadcasts, and he would give you a story that you were familiar with, and then he would give you the rest of the story that you didn't know, and it was always amazing. And I heard a few of these. We were watching a show this week. I heard a few of these. I want you to see if you knew this. March 2nd, 1955, there's a young woman who refuses to give up her seat on a bus to a white man, and she's arrested in Alabama. And so the civil rights leaders rush to her side, and she will be a symbol, they think. It's Claudette Colvin, is her name. And she's 15 years old, but she's also pregnant. And so they decide she's a single mom, about to have a baby. She's not the best representative of the civil rights movement. Eight months later, Rosa Parks does the same thing. Now, during those eight months, a brilliant young minister, Martin Luther King Jr., gets the attention of his congregation. If Claudette Colvin wasn't pregnant, the protests would have happened in the spring, and we may never have heard of Martin Luther King Jr. as the leader that he was. What about a guy named Giuseppe Zangara? February fifteenth, 1933, he fired five shots from a wobbly stool and killed the mayor of Chicago. He didn't mean to kill the mayor, though. He meant to assassinate the newly elected Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was on a wobbly chair. Now, if FDR is assassinated, doesn't take office, and we as a country swear in his running mate, John Garner III, a man who actually opposed Roosevelt's legislation known as the New Deal, and we as a country don't survive the Great Depression. The kitchen faucet in your house has washers that keep water from leaking, O-rings, on spaceships, do exactly the same thing. They keep pressure in. They've been tested, and they've been tested except for in cold weather because cold weather doesn't happen in South Florida, except on January 28th, 27th, 1986, when the temperature dropped to about 18 degrees and the O-rings froze on the Challenger spaceship and just seconds into its flight, the entire spaceship erupted. There's stories, and then there's the rest of the story. I love this moment in Jesus' teaching because he's looking at a crowd that's already upset and he says this, Are you offended? Then wait till you hear the rest of the story. Where do you see me ascend in glory. where do you see me exalted and glorified. See, this is the part that got me while I was in quarantine. Jesus lays out all this teaching, this hard teaching. Remember what his disciples said. This is a difficult teaching. He lays this hard teaching out, and then he watches the crowd, we're told, and he's aware of the grumbling, and he knows something is taking place. But once again, he doesn't look to calm them down. He doesn't try to re-explain. He doesn't say, oh, I didn't mean it that way. He actually lets them live into the tension. Does this offend you? then wait till you see what's going to happen down the road wait till you see me glorified what if you see me go to the cross and suffer like you're supposed to what if you see me dead what if you see me in the grave for three days and then what if you see me resurrected and ascending to heaven then followers of Jesus maybe you'll get it maybe you'll wake up maybe you'll recognize that I am the source of life and a long time ago you should have started to feed on me Because the things you put your hope in aren't going to last. Here's the second lesson from quarantine today. Jesus will, everybody say will. There's no might here. Jesus will offend you in the best way possible. I like this moment because Jesus reminds me more of my friend Abraham, the translator, than of myself. I watched Abraham the rest of that weekend, and that guy who was out of line didn't really interact with him much. He kind of knew his place after that. And What I loved about that was that Abraham moved in those moments, not out of arrogance, not out of a sense of trying to prove himself right. He had no ego there. He simply wanted to tell the truth to this guy and then say, find your place in this story. Friends, I think sometimes we've gotten so wrapped up in Jesus as the lover of our soul. Remember our songs, right? How he loves me, how he loves me, how he loves me, oh, this, how he loves me. But we miss, when we only look at Jesus, the lover of our souls. sometimes we miss Jesus, the offender of our souls. But here's the thing. Max Lucado says it this way. Don't miss this. Jesus loves you just as you are, but he refuses to leave you just as you are. Friends, greatest news in the world, the grace of the gospel. Jesus loves you just as you are and not as you should be, as Brendan Manning says, because none of us is as we should be, but he refuses to leave you that way. And he's the only one in the universe who has the right and the ability and the grace to live into the tension of complete grace, unconditional love, and the high cost of discipleship that requires we give up all we are to follow him. He's the only one that gets to do it. If you come to me and you say, I love you just as you are, but you need to change, I'm going to get out of my life, right? Jesus does that. He has every right to do that. He does it to the Samaritan woman. Right, he meets her at the well. He says, what's going on in your life? You have, go get your husband. I don't have husbands. I've been with a lot of men. Good. Then understand that that's not filling you up. Now go tell your community. Go do something different. The woman caught in the act of adultery brought to him legally. She could have been killed. He forgives her with unconditional grace. And then he looks at her in the unconditional grace, not out of legalism, and says, now go and sin no more. Zacchaeus comes to him. He says, Zacchaeus, you've wronged all these people, but you need to repay it. I love you. I'm going to have dinner with you. I'm going to sit in your house and love you and enjoy the company, but I'm also going to tell you you've been a jerk. Is Jesus the one that you allow to offend you? See, there's some things that we, as Christ followers in the 21st century, need to be offended by and need to let Jesus offend us. Maybe when it comes to our sexuality and our relationships, maybe when it comes to our money, Maybe when it comes to the way we treat others with gossip and anger, our attitudes, our politics, whatever it is, our priorities. What is it for you that Jesus might want to offend? See, there's the last part of this story that has always bothered me. This is where we'll end today. It's kind of a downer. Sorry about that. It's right after Jesus says all that. After he offends this crowd and he, what if you see me in glory? Does this offend you? What if you, then it says this. And I love the number of this verse. I don't do numerology stuff, but this is John 6, verse 66. Ready? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. See, this is the part that got me in quarantine. I've been in ministry for 20 years and I've done a lot of work in regards to church leadership and how to grow disciples and how to grow to the church and I've never heard anyone preach this part of this chapter. I have never heard a sermon about this. I've heard people talk about walking on the water, feeding 5,000. I've never heard someone preach about how Jesus lost disciples. I've never heard a sermon about strategically thinning out your congregation. I've read books, really stupid books, about growth barriers in churches, what numbers are hard and how to get through them. And I've never heard this addressed. And yet everything in me as a follower of Jesus reads this part of John and says, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing in this moment. He knew what was going to happen, how this would cost his ministry, how he would lose followers, and he doesn't back down from it. He actually, in some ways, strategically raises the cost of discipleship to a point where people leave. Now, let that sink in. I don't want you to hear me saying this on my own. I want you to see Jesus doing this because here's the last lesson for the day. There are costs to discipleship, and some of us won't make it. I'm just telling you the truth. This is the downer part of this. I had a middle school group on a mission trip to Niagara Falls one time. Sixth through eighth graders, mainly sixth and seventh. They were a young crew, and we had this incredible week serving. And the last night, the leaders of this group did a foot washing ceremony. Have you ever washed middle school feet? There is a commitment level as a youth pastor. You got nothing to complain about, right? Like that, you just go all in. And we're doing this, and I'm praying over these kids as I'm washing their feet. And I'm watching sixth and seventh grade boys, girls, and boys sob. Because they've never been served like this. They've never experienced this. And they're experiencing this. And we go through this this circle of foot washing. And I'm like so disgusted and just want it to be over. And they're sobbing. They're hugging each other. It's like the last day of church camp. I'm just, oh, we're going to fall apart. And I said, sit down and listen to me. I said, do you know what happened to the disciples when Jesus washed their feet? And they were like, no. And I said, every one of them betrayed him. Every one of them left him. And some of you are going to do the same thing. See, we can have the mountaintop experience. We can have our feet washed. The one kid was like, well, you are really a bummer. I was like, yeah, but you need to wake up to this. See, some of us want the mountaintop experiences with Jesus, but we don't want the commitment level of going to the cross with him. We want Jesus to wash our feet, but we don't want to pick up his cross. And We've got to wake up to this. The church in the U.S. is dying. And by the way, COVID is a crisis, and crisis is an accelerator. And the church is dying, not because, not because we have a lack of resources, but because we have a lack of disciples. Because we have a lack of people who are willing to feed and consume Jesus and understand the cost that it is to follow him. Matthew 10, last verse for the day, maybe. Verse 34, don't suppose Jesus says that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn, now check this out, this doesn't jive with my how he loves us Christianity. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life for me will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Can I boil it down to this? Jesus isn't interested in convenience. He's interested in your commitment. That's what it comes down to because he knows where the story is going. You think it's hard to follow Jesus now? What about when he's exalted? What about when it's too late? It's when Scripture says every knee will bow. So what do we do with these lessons? See, Jesus is going to teach you some things that aren't easy. Will you learn the lessons? Jesus will offend you in the best ways possible. Will you embrace that offense? And there are costs to discipleship that some of us won't last through. And listen, I could say this to students because they're young, but I want to say it to some of you that are middle-aged, upper-aged, because you need to hear it. You put discipleship aside a long time ago simply to go all in with intellectual Christianity. And you are the greatest intellectual Christian in the world, but you are not a disciple. And I love you enough to tell you the truth. Does it offend you? I'm sorry. The rest of the story is that you're going to bow and understand that one day when Jesus is exalted anyway. we got to wake up to this. we got to be the church. We have a culture around us that for the past year, we're almost a year into this COVID thing. We have a culture around us that has never been more afraid, never been more anxious, never been more angry at each other. And we're sitting back going, well, I don't know. See what happens. And this is the theology that drives me crazy. This is not on the script. I should probably stop. Theology that drives me crazy. Well, God will sort it out in the end. I'm good. I know I love Jesus. Friends, that's not the gospel. See, the gospel is... Heaven come to earth. Heaven come to earth. Heaven come to earth. Be the kingdom of God on earth. Live into that. Be consumed with Jesus so that you're waking up going, what does Jesus have for me today? What am I going to do in my workplace? How am I going to get over my anger to love the people who are broken and hurting? You know the people that are broken and hurting that don't have any hope? They should be angry. They should be hurting. We have salvation. We have grace. We have mercy. You're a jerk, and God loves you anyway. That should be... Cause us to rejoice. I was so moved this week. David Sack put us on the spot with the men's ministry. He said, no Bible study this week. We're getting together. We're going to walk around our community and pray. Why? Because we need to pray for our community. We need to ask God to show us the broken places. We've got to be the church, the disciples that begin to consume Jesus. We last, here's the final part. The band can come says, from that time on, John 6, verse 66, right? From that time on, many of his disciples left him. Verse 67, Jesus looks at his 12. He says, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter, I love this, answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, listen, I-, I know this, and as we close, I want to say this. There are easier ways to live than as Jesus followers. If if I didn't believe this to be true, I wouldn't do this. There are easier ways to live. But there's not life in the easier ways. Not real life. Not the joy of seeing people come back and hold each other up and lift a hand when life is going to hell. And say, God, I trust you anyway to hold each other's arms up when life is falling apart, to be surrounding each other and rejoicing when we rejoice and grieving when we grieve and walking together as the church and consumed as the church should be, that the church is not a building, it's a mission. It's a place that God has established as an outpost of his kingdom and says, now grow the kingdom. Wherever you go, grow the kingdom. But it starts with us consuming and loving Jesus. So let's stand and pray together. Father, thank you for hard words Jesus thank you for speaking truth even when crowds don't like it I pray that this is not my voice that this is yours I pray that you would teach us hard things that you would offend us in the best ways possible that you would show us every day what it means to be a people who live off of the life that you give that we would consume your flesh drink your blood in the way that it just so permeates all of our being, all of our identity, that we live and breathe and move out of who you are. God, lead us in that way. Father, it's in your name. Amen. As we begin to sing this song, you received the communion pieces as you came in. And I want to invite you, this is our second time doing communion since we've been back in person service. It's really special to me because it's one of the things that I miss most. If you didn't get one there in the back, or we can pass them out to you. But I would invite you as we sing, as you're ready to peel back and take the wafer and take the juice, but I want to invite you beyond that because the scripture says, Paul says this, that when we come to the table of the Lord and their table was a feast, that we should examine our hearts. We should be asking God these questions. You can hear my words and you can be moved by my words and you can leave and nothing changes or you can choose to examine your hearts and say, God, as I consume this, Jesus May I consume you. And so I'd invite you into a time of preparation and repentance. And maybe you need to make some things right. But let this be the table of the Lord, the supper together that he invited us to. And as we do it, may we remember his sacrifice on the cross. So let's sing and share communion together.